Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, is it, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I receive from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This is the word of your God. If you were asked to describe the greatest party that you have ever been to, which one would you describe? And what would you describe? What would you describe about it that made it so great? The host, the invitations, the meal, the food and drink that was served to you? Or maybe it's not those things. Maybe it's just the occasion, the people the guests that you're there with. Whether you are an extrovert who loves parties because that's how you're rejuvenated, or you're more introverted and you don't really mind the fact that the pandemic kind of built in an excuse for you to be able to say no to parties you don't want to go to, wherever you are on that spectrum of personalities, I bet you can picture at least one party because we like to party. People are partiers. I don't know, maybe you thought of your wedding or your wedding reception or a friend or family's wedding celebration. Maybe the party that you thought of was one that you celebrate 
just once a year, your birthday, or maybe a birthday of your children. Maybe it's one you're looking forward to in just a month or so. It's, it's gathering together with family and friends over a Thanksgiving dinner. Or maybe the special meal for your family is, is more Christmas dinner. But maybe the, the family and the holidays, don't, those aren't your favorite kind of parties. Maybe, maybe it's gathering together with tons of people. It's gathering together with maybe a few of your friends, but friends that, that you haven't even met yet at something big like a concert or a game. Or maybe it's just the regular summer barbecue. Hot days, cold drinks, longer nights. Me personally, my favorite party, my favorite gathering. Maybe it's yours too. Just gathering together with, with a few friends around a campfire on a cool, crisp fall night. No matter where you come from, no matter what your experience with parties has been like, chances are that you have been to at least one party. And if that's true, there's even greater chances that you've really liked that party. It's actually something that scientists have proven over and over again with experiment after experiment for the past 100, 200 years or so. What they found is that something happens when, when people gather together on a happy occasion for a party. People connect to one another. People communicate with one another in a, in a sort of nonverbal way where there's this sort of energy, this euphoria that's experienced by everyone who's there. Scientists have found this, and so they've given it a name. This feeling is called collective effervescence. Probably not a word or phrase that we use too often, but if you've ever left a, a gathering, a party, and said, that was a lot of fun, you've experienced collective effervescence. But here's the thing. Long before scientists told us that we are people who like parties, Long before 1992, when the Dutch Eurodance group, the Vegan Boys, told us that we like to party, we like, we like to party, Jesus knew it. Jesus knew that people are partiers, and here's the thing, so is your Savior. He enjoyed groups gathering together to celebrate. And so on a day that we now call Monday Thursday, what Jesus did was he instituted a celebration, a commemoration, and cemented it with a sacred act called the sacrament. It's something that he wanted all of God's people for all times to gather together for and to celebrate. You know I'm talking about the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion. But maybe, maybe it Maybe it rubs you the wrong way that I called this sacred act, the Lord's Supper, a party. I hope that you don't think it's, it's disrespectful or it's sacrilegious to think of the Lord's Supper as a party because what we're going to do this morning is through an extended metaphor, we're going to compare that greatest party that you've ever been to to the party that's taking place when God's people gather together around the Lord's Supper. And I get it. I get it. 
the Lord commemorated this and instituted this on a very somber occasion. I get it that this was instituted during the celebration of the Passover, the great Old Testament party celebration that that took place really to commemorate what happened when a lamb was killed and blood was painted on the door. And I get that that was to point us ahead to the blood that would be shed by the Lamb of God. I understand. I understand that this is the most serious of occasions because all that happens in the Lord's Supper is to point us to our Savior's death and the reason for our Savior's death that we sin. But step back and realize for a moment what Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, was doing at the Lord's Supper, what he's leaving you with. He's leaving you with the gospel. He's leaving you with his forgiveness, and he's not leaving you on the night before he departs from his disciples. He's not leaving you with, here's the moral code that you need to find, or, or here's riches. No, our king doesn't leave us with that. What he leaves us with is the present of his presence, and he does that by gathering together those he loves, his disciples. He does it on a specific occasion, the night before he died, where the Passover pointed to that, And he does it by gathering us together around a meal with food and drink. And I don't know about you, but that sounds a whole lot like a party. What we're talking about in communion, in the Lord's Supper, when God's people gather together there, is celebrating what Christ has given to us. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I mentioned it before, through an extended metaphor, we're going to talk about the warm welcome that our host gives. We're going to talk, number two, about the meal that we're served. We're going to talk about the occasion that we're remembering. And last but not least, we're going to talk about the guests, the other guests who are invited to this party And what we're going to be reminded of is this, that when God's people gather together in communion, what God serves us is for you and your soul's highest good. We're going to talk about a lot of good things, but first we need to make a quick aside for the bad. You heard me read 1 Corinthians chapter 11 earlier, and I suppose I need to set some context for for why those words were written. See, the Apostle Paul wrote those to a young church, to the Corinthian congregation, and he wrote them because if there's something bad, something that can make any party go south, it was taking place in this young church. It's the whole reason why Paul wrote this section of his letter to the Corinthians. It's what caused Paul to look at their celebration of communion and really say this, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're celebrating. It's because this thing that poisons parties was there. He said, it's not even the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Paul said, what are you doing? What was happening 
we can call it by a lot of different names, entitlement, drunkenness, immaturity. But the one thing that can make all parties go south can go by one simple word, selfishness. People here were being very, very selfish. The, the strong people, the rich people, they were shoving their way to the front of the lines and they were eating all of the bread and wine as though they didn't have those things at their home. And that meant that people who were smaller, weaker, or poorer were going hungry. They weren't getting any. And so that's why Paul wrote these instructions, what the Lord had passed on to him and all his apostles. And that's the bad. And we need to note it at the beginning because if there's one thing that causes people to misunderstand what's taking place in the Lord's Supper, it's selfishness. If there's one thing that causes people to misinterpret what Jesus is saying in the Lord's Supper, it's the same thing. If there's one thing that causes people to misappropriate all of the blessings that God gives to them in the Lord's Supper, it's selfishness. It's people making something that was supposed to be for them all about them. And that's why Paul wrote this. Because just like we know, like scientists tell us that there's this thing called collective effervescence where good vibes get spread among those who are sharing experience together. Negative emotions also spread just as quickly and even more effectively. And so to guard against that, Paul lays out these instructions and he starts in like this. He says, the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. I mentioned we're focusing on four things in the Lord's Supper. We're talking about the meal that we're served, the occurrence around which we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the guests who are there. But let's start with this. Let's start with the warm welcome that's given to us by the host of this party. What's happening in the Lord's Supper? Well, what we see is Jesus welcoming us with open arms and saying, this is for you, all of it. Do I need to bring anything to the party? Nope, just come as you are. This is for you. Those are powerful words for you, the new covenant. What he's saying is I am welcoming you in to this new covenant, this one-sided covenant, this one-sided promise that I am making with you as your God, that I will love you unconditionally, that I will forgive you fully. You see what's happening here, don't you? In the Lord's Supper, what is being proclaimed, what is being preached is nothing different than all of the gospel. All of salvation history has this theme. This is not about you, but it is for you. And what God is giving to you is all of forgiveness, all of grace, and just welcoming you with his open and outspread arms. I told you this is the theme that if there's one thing that, that you misunderstand or you get wrong about the Lord's Supper or even about the gospel, it, 
It's that it's about you. It's for you, but it's not about you. And often that's where people can go wrong about what God gives in the Lord's Supper. So often people can rob themselves of the comfort that God gives them here because they make the Lord's Supper about what they do or don't do, about what they feel or don't feel, about what they want to make time for or don't make time for. They make this meal that is for them about them. Can I give you an example of what this would be like? This would be like if your friend came up to you and said, hey, Matt, I'm inviting you and a couple people over for a backyard barbecue. Can you come? And you look at him and you say, no, actually, I tell you what, I'm going to do something even better for you. I'm going to come. Friend would go, what? Oh, okay. <laughs> be like if you went to a friend or a family member's wedding and unasked, you stood up, made a toast, but it wasn't to the couple. It was, it was to you for taking the time to travel there, for making the effort to get dressed up for it, this occasion, for buying a gift for them. People will look at you funny. They would say, who is this annoying narcissistic nuisance on, on what would have otherwise been a really nice night? And yet too often, that's what people do with the Lord's Supper. With arms wide open, the host, your Savior Jesus says, this is for you, a new covenant, a one-sided covenant. You don't have to bring anything. Come as you are. I'm giving to you everything. I'm asking from you nothing. And yet we turn it into something that's about us. The best part, the good news with this gospel invitation is that it is good news. It requires nothing of you, but in this supper, your host welcomes you warmly and gives to you everything. What is everything? What does he give you? Well, that's the next part. We're talking about the warm welcome our host gives. Secondly, the meal we receive once we get to the party. God's word tells us, for I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. What do you receive in the Lord's Supper? We confess and we believe that when Jesus said, this is my body, he meant it. We believe and we confess that when Jesus took hold of the cup, the wine, and he said, this is my blood, he meant it. It's not allegory, it's not metaphor, it's not parable, or it's not poetry, but Jesus' real body and blood are really here present in the Lord's Supper. And I know that brings up so many questions. It brings up so many questions about how this happens. What, what happens? Does it happen that the bread and wine are somehow mixed together with Christ's body and blood? 
The text doesn't say that. Does it happen that the bread and the wine are somehow transformed into Christ's body and blood? The text doesn't say that. Does it happen that just the bread and wine, they're just mere symbols of Christ's body and blood? Go read the Gospels. Go read these words in 1 Corinthians 11. God's word definitely does not say that. What God's word does not call us to do is think about the chemistry or the science of what's going on here in the Lord's Supper. What it does call us to do is look at the words and the promises that are going on in the Lord's Supper. That Jesus said, this is my body and blood. And because he said it, I believe it. And when you start to see that, when you start to believe that, what you see is that you get all that is attached to Christ's body and blood. You get everything that's Christ. His forgiveness, his righteousness, his confidence to stand in your baptismal identity, eternal collective effervescence, that gathering together with the communion of saints both now and in eternity means that you have bliss and joy unending and not just here on earth. This is what you receive in the Lord's Supper. It's not just a little slice of Jesus. It's not just a here, take a little bite of him because, you know, he's a pretty good guy. He might want to have him inside of you as you go out from here. No, you get all that is attached to Christ's body and blood. These words, my body, my blood for you, those are powerful words. What Christ is saying, what took place at Christmas in the incarnation, me coming and taking on flesh, what took place at Calvary, me dying in the flesh and rising, all of that in my body and blood, I now give to you. I now put in you. And when you see that, you start to step back and see all of the ways that Christ does bless us in one simple celebration. I don't know, maybe it's been a thing that people have always done, but since adulting, I've seen it happen more and more that when people invite you over for a party, for a dinner, often people ask if you have any allergies. I get it, that's that's really a thoughtful thing, really a gracious thing to do because people want to serve at their dinner party something that is not only good, objectively, they want to serve something that is also good for you. And in a similar way, that's what Jesus is is doing here. But he doesn't even have to ask. (laughs) He knows what's good for you, and he gives it all to you in his body and in his blood. We're going to go on. We're going to talk about the third thing, the occasion on which this is celebrated. But for a moment, before we do, just pause. Just pause to see that when your Savior welcomes you here in the Lord's Supper, what he gives to you himself and all that's attached to that in the Lord's Supper, that it's all good. It's all the greatest and best good for you and your soul. It is grace upon grace. It's gospel upon gospel. That is what's here in the Lord's Supper. And this is the occasion upon which it's celebrated. God's word says that you are to do this whenever. You're to do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a problem with this verse. And it's the problem that maybe you've already guessed that people do to it. People take this verse and say, okay, it says do this and and remember it. And that means that what this is, is about me remembering Jesus. This is a memorial that I am celebrating for Jesus. But we forget when Jesus spoke these words first to his disciples, a group of Jewish men, and the early New Testament church, the apostles and Paul spoke these words of institution to them. And they talked about remembering that this is a remembrance It wasn't how you and I talk about remembering in 2021. Like, oh, I forgot. (laughs) Good thing I remember Jesus. No, what this does is is it harkens back to the God of the Old Testament, who is the God of the New Testament, the God who remembered Noah, the God who remembered Jacob, the God who remembered his people Israel. It takes us back to David and Daniel who sing beautiful praises to the God who remembered them and saved them. See, whenever the Bible talks about remembering and and most specifically God remembering, what it points to is an action that God does, specifically when God acts on one of his promises. What you could say that you are reading here in the Lord's Supper is this, that when God's people gather together, Jesus throws a party and it's for your good, for the highest good of your soul, because God is acting. God is moving. God is remembering you. God is remembering you and that you are the one that his son died for 2,000 years ago on the cross. God is remembering you and that in the waters of your baptism, he adopted you to be his very own child. God is remembering you in this meal and he is acting. He is moving on the greatest promise he ever made, that Christ would die and Christ would rise again. What you might say is that In the Lord's Supper, Jesus is saving you. God, he is saving you. Not that you weren't saved before you came to the Lord's Supper and partook of it, but that you have a God who is in the business of saving, constantly saving. He saved you on a hill called Calvary. He saved you in the waters of the baptism. He saves you whenever you celebrate this meal and he will save you again tomorrow through his word and sacrament. He forgave you, he forgives you, and he will forgive you again. That is the God that you have. And that is what this takes us to remember that God remembers you. Perhaps one of the saddest narratives in Christianity today is that people talk about being saved at one time. When were you saved? When did you get saved? And the reason that's a problem is because what it does to that individual Christian is it puts all the pressure on them from that point on. That that's when I was saved by God. And now I need to prove that I'm saved or grow in my salvation by some form of obedience, by some form of producing fruits. And yet we have a God who 
who saved us saves us and will save us again. That in this supper, what is taking place is Jesus is giving you salvation and all of the gifts that go along with that. What is it that you think brings about the fruit, that brings about the obedience? It is the God who saves you, serving himself to you. Remember, this is not about you. This is all for you. And when you realize that, the weightiness of these words start to sink in. Do this whenever. Do this, literally it says, as often as you do this. And then the question goes from, how often do I have to take this? How often should I do this? The emphasis shifts to why wouldn't you do this whenever you have the opportunity? Why wouldn't you receive what God gives you at every chance that you get? That Jesus Christ opens up his arms and welcomes you into everything that he has through him, his body, his blood. He gives that to you in this meal. He is the host that welcomes you with open arms. This is the occurrence that Jesus Christ actually does work. He saves you in the Lord's Supper. The question, that's all gospel, now becomes this. This is law. What are you doing if you don't do this often? I think of some of the greatest parties that my family had growing up. <laughs> They're up north when we would go camping, stay in cabins, and you know our family would all be there. And inevitably this happened. Before we left, grandma would get teary-eyed. She'd say goodbye. She'd say, we, we should do this more often. I mean, she was right. I mean, that's what people say, right, at, at really great parties as you, as you look back on the wonderful time that you had that evening, the, the food, the company. You look at it and you go, we should do this more often. And maybe that's a separate sermon we could talk about sometime. But that often is, is a nice sentiment that gets, that gets stated because you know that you, you can't do this more often. You didn't say it to grandma, but... Grandma, we all go back to college. Our cousins fly back out of state. We, we don't do this more often. It's just something you say. Whether or not it should is another matter. But here, when Jesus says, as often as you do this, it's not just some sweet sentiment. He is cementing all of the blessings that he gives you in this moment, in this time, his body, his blood for you, this new covenant, it is all yours. And it's not about you creating this moment or having this time, but it is all for you. And God says, whenever you do this, whenever God's people gather together in communion, I am giving you goodness, the highest good for you and your soul. Here's just one more thing. One more thing we need to talk about are the people, the guests that come to this party. It's you. So then, Paul writes, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty 
of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. I guessed it. The problem with these words is that people often take these words and, and they look at these words and they consider them and they become afraid. <laughs> Am I worthy enough to celebrate the Lord's Supper? And to a certain degree, it's good. It is really good to take these words and take seriously that you really receive the body and blood of your Lord. But you see, Paul is giving these words not to drive people away from the Lord's Supper, but he's giving them so that more and more people come and celebrate the Lord's Supper in the way that God wants them to celebrate it. In a worthy manner. What makes you worthy? It's not your worthiness or your unworthiness. It's his. You want to know what makes you worthy to take the body and blood of the Lord? It's the gift of faith that the Holy Spirit has given you through baptism, gives you through his word, and gives you again and again here in, with, and under the bread and wine, his body and blood. You want to find out if you're worthy to take this meal? Do you believe, do you have faith, do you trust that in this meal, Jesus Christ is welcoming you with opening arms, giving you everything, expecting from you nothing? Yes? Then you're worthy. Do you believe that here in the Lord's Supper is truly present Christ's body and blood, and in that, God gives you everything, all of the gifts that he gives to his people? Do you believe that? And you're worthy. Do you believe that this occasion, whenever you celebrate it, it is a proclamation of the gospel and that it is not just this commemoration or memorial where you just sit here and contemplate, but God really acts, really moves, really works about faith and salvation in you? Do you believe that? And you're worthy. Do you believe that on your own, you're unworthy? and you have sin, but Christ makes you worthy through his body and blood, then you are worthy to be a guest here at the Lord's Supper. It is the one place where people from every nation, people from every socioeconomic status, from every background, from every age, demographic, can all gather together and feast at the best party there is. The Declaration of Independence, it makes some really nice promises of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. In Christ's sacrament of the Lord's Supper, he promises to give you eternal life, salvation, forgiveness, faith, and so much more. Maybe it's time that God's people make not a Declaration of Independence, but a declaration of interdependence, depending on Christ who is united with us here. A dependence on the body of blood that is united in, with, and under the bread and wine. A dependence on one another that gather together here. After all, that, that's what this series, To Gather Together, has been all about. 
it's been, it's been a series talking about why we gather together. Not just the things that we do gather around, the what, the worship, the groups, communion, but why we do it. All the blessings that God gives there. And maybe you've caught on that another reason for this series was that through the words of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, he, he might motivate you. He might motivate you and move you to want to gather together more for, for all the right reasons. Because I, I get it. There are reasons, some, some sincere reasons, why God's people are not gathering together as often or as much or in the ways that God says you should gather. There are some sincere reasons, but there's also some sinful reasons. Sinful reasons why God's people are not gathering together. And what I hope this series would do is allow those of you who are not gathering together to think about those reasons. Because I can't judge your heart and I don't judge your actions but you do know those things. That's my prayer, that this series, the Holy Spirit would, would help you to evaluate your reasons when you don't gather together. And for those of you who do gather, who are all about gathering together all of the time, my prayer for this series is that what it would do is knock you off your high horse and get you to instead go out and encourage someone you want to gather together with. Because we have it. We have all of the right reasons, all of the greatest motivations for why God's people gather together. I mean, here is Hebrews chapter 10. You want to know what could be greater motivation than this? That by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to stand in the presence of God. This happens whenever God's people gather together in worship. That because we have the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed pure with water, you know what we get to do? We get to gather together with full confidence with other people. And this happens whenever God's people gather together in groups of Christians. That we have all of the reasons to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for we feast on the promises of the one who is always faithful. This is why God's people gather together, and this is what happens when God's people gather together in communion. So what's left? Just this. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up, meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Amen.